0: Hi, Simon here, and before we get to this week's episode, I just wanted to tell you about our Black Friday course offer, where for one week only, we're offering you our comprehensive online-only SUP safety course for 50% off, and that's a huge reduction down to £18.50 for lifetime access. It's full of instructor-led videos, quizzes and downloads with the key information you need to know and it's designed to help you weigh up and make the right decisions as you get on the water. The aim of the course is to give new or intermediate paddlers the help you need to become more self-sufficient. It's all useful stuff and it covers tides, conditions, weather, water flow, planning, cold water kit, beach safety and a whole lot more. This is an offer we only do over Black Friday week. So don't miss out on this 50% offer, and you can claim it by going to com forward slash course and by using the code BF50. So that's com forward slash course using the code BF50 for 50% off, and that offer ends at midnight on Tuesday the 30th of November 2021. Okay, let's get on with the show. Aloha and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand up paddleboarders everywhere. So, with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. Well, hello and welcome back to SUP FM. And as we're running up to Christmas, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. We're featuring some of the best bits from three interviews we did this year with female paddlers from the US, Canada and the UK. First up, we've got some highlights from Nick's chat with US champion racer, Fiona Wild. Next, Lizzie Carr, British paddleboard adventurer, founder of the Plastic Patrol organisation and a brand new mum. So congratulations, Lizzie. And finally the best bits from my chat with Maddie LeBlanc from Toronto, whose achievements and successes on the water led to her being awarded the SubConnect woman of the year, which is a stellar achievement. Before we start, I'd like to thank all the guests that we've interviewed this year. We've really enjoyed getting back into the podcast after a lengthy gap and it's been great that Stand Up Paddle has had such an incredible year of popularity. We both want to keep spreading the word about its benefits and to help you paddle more and enjoy your time on the water. So we appreciate you for downloading this episode and if you felt that Any of our episodes have been entertaining or helpful, then please share our episodes with your fellow paddlers and also write us a review. So, as the wind howls outside, we'd like to wish you a very happy Christmas and a wonderful 2021. So, let's get into our first Best Bits compilation, which is with Fiona World, a US starboard athlete and a champion paddler, and she's achieved all of this despite being diagnosed with and managing type 1 diabetes here's Nick's chat with Fiona Wilde
1: hi Fiona thanks so much for joining us on the SUPFM podcast how are you doing over there
2: great thank you so much for having me it's um it's fun to be here it's fun to be chatting with you and uh, it'd be fun to be on the water but uh we'll just have to make do with this right now
1: yeah what's the deal have you managed to get out on the water lately is it is it legal in Oregon or not
2: Yeah, so for a while there, pretty much all access to the Columbia River was closed, and a lot of the access that we um, put into the water here to the river is through state parks, and state parks are still currently closed. However, the city and the port of Hadover have just recently opened up a few more access points. So just this last week, I've been able to get in the water and paddle a bunch, and it has felt so good. So um, I was able to do a few smaller paddles, you know, a couple weeks ago, but now it's like I actually have room and I can go a bit further, and um, I'm loving it.
1: It's great to get back. I mean, I went myself on Monday because we were allowed – in Portugal here, we are allowed to get out – on the water again. And it's just, yeah, it's an amazing feeling to get on the water. It's really, really good. So I feel sorry for all those other people around the world who are locked down right now.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's difficult. It's, um, just to, when I feel like after taking a bit of time off, um, when you get back on the water, you really appreciate it and realize how much, or at least I do, how much I kind of took it for granted that every day, whenever I wanted to or not, uh, just go down to the water. Um, and now, in a way, it's like a kind of forced reflection because it's like, okay, paddling is something that I used to do just every day. And now, or for a while there, I couldn't. So now it's something that I really want to do every day and I'm not going to take it for granted like I did before.
1: Mm, absolutely, yeah. But obviously, um, you kind of live in nature all the time, I would imagine. And as a, as a young girl, how did that initially start? I mean, were you, did you have an outdoors family? Were you always outdoors?
2: Absolutely, yeah. My family... Um, we always were very tight very small family um, I'm an only child and um, actually we don't have I don't have any other cousins not any first cousins so I was always outdoors playing with my parents and aunts and uncles and uh, grandparents and so when we wanted to do something a lot of times we would just look towards the outdoors whether that be sailing or windsurfing or uh, biking or anything like that like our playground is pretty much the outdoors So for me, um, especially now living in Hood River, uh, it's kind of the same thing. You know, people always ask, like, oh, you know, what do you do? And if you ask that question in Hood River, they're not asking you about what you do for school or for jobs or anything like that. They're asking you about what recreation you do. And so, you know, it's kind (laughs) of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I windsurf, I paddle, I bike, I ski, like, we ride in the mountains, all those things. So it's pretty cool because um, my upbringing has showed me that, you know, er, basically my upbringing has taught me that you, the outdoors has a big enough playground for you to have fun, be healthy, and really enjoy it. And um, I'm lucky to have, be able to choose where I live now and to live in her River and have all the access to, you know, the trails and everything else um, when they're open uh, is amazing.
1: Yeah. So what's the main main things that you can do right now um, under lockdown? Are you running or cycling or mm-hmm. what's the difference?
2: Yeah, a bit of both, actually. Um, during the main part, of the majority of our, actually pretty much all our trails were closed for about six weeks. Um, and so during that time, I was just running on the road. Um, I got to run a half marathon, a virtual half marathon. Well, I physically ran it, but it was virtually with <laughs> yeah. a bunch of other people. Um, And that was for um, JDRF, which is the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, Um, and they create a lot of fundraisers to raise money for research um, to try and hopefully find a cure for type 1 diabetes. And since I have type 1 diabetes and I work a lot with them, it was really cool to do something like that where okay I get to challenge myself, I get to push myself, but then it also goes towards a really good cause too.
1: Sure. I'd love to dig then, into that a little bit later. But um yeah. how can can you tell us in like as great a detail as possible about the very first time you climbed up onto a stand up paddleboard? <laughs>
2: um I do you can. remember it? Actually I do remember that because I was at a windsurf competition and I was twelve. Um I <laughs> there was a windsurf competition that was happening in southern oregon and we were there for windsurf wave sailing and i um i had never really been in the waves before so i was trying to be in the waves you know for the first time windsurfing i was trying to you know compete 12 years old freezing cold water it was nuking wow. it was blowing like 40 the whole week um it was a 4 day competition and for the first three days, I couldn't even make it out through the surf. I was just like getting so wound up on the inside, trying to punch through and just getting yarded. Either the waves would knock me back or the, the winds break would just get ripped out of my hands because it was so windy. Um, and finally the last day I actually made it out. And like everybody on the beach was so excited. They were cheering. And it was, that was like (laughs) the biggest accomplishment that I had made it actually out to where most people had been, you know, competing, but whatever it was 12 <laughs> anyways yeah. um that next day uh, there was one day i think it was like the sunday and everybody was just kind of hanging out hadn't left yet and the wind completely died there were some small little waves and they're like oh yeah we'll put you you know we'll put you in a little uh there's a stand-up competition some people had some stand-up boards like put your name down if you want to do it and i'd never stand up a before but i was like oh cool I'll try it. <laughs> I don't know what it is. So I remember uh, they just randomly divided us all up into heats. And because I'd kind of come up late, there was like one spot open in one heat. So they just put me in that heat. Well, I was in a heat with like Robbie Nash and a few other kids that were quite young that actually knew what they were doing. And Did you say
0: Robbie Nash?
2: Funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. It was pretty funny. <laughs> So um, I had never stood on a board before, but, you know, I tried to paddle out. Same thing kind of with the Windsor thing. I couldn't actually make it out the back because I was on this like 10 foot by 36 massive board. I didn't know anything about it. But, um, you know, I couldn't really catch any waves because I couldn't get out. So I just decided to turn around, catch the whitewater and do a headstand. And that's what I did. (laughs) (laughs) So that was going to be my first time stand up paddling.
1: Obviously, additionally, you manage to excel in an endurance sport whilst having type one diabetes. So, what kind of preparation and awareness does it take to manage the whole condition? It
2: takes um, it takes management, like you just said. You know, it takes management and awareness of my body and prior preparation. To be completely honest, um, type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease where my pancreas doesn't produce insulin, and in order for you know my body to act. Normally, whenever I eat anything that has any kind of sugar or carbohydrates, um, you need insulin, because when you eat sugar and carbohydrates, that backs up in your blood, gets broken down into sugars and stored in your blood, and insulin would act as the key to basically unlock a door from your bloodstream, um, from your veins and all that that has your blood, and let the sugars enter your muscles. So if you don't have insulin, then... All the sugar that you're eating, consuming, just sits in your blood, and you can't actually process it, and your muscles don't get any food, so you feel extremely weak. So I take insulin, um, I inject insulin um, somewhere between five and ten times a day, depending on my blood sugar levels. So I'm constantly you know, poking myself with uh, little needles to inject, and I wear a device on my stomach called Dexcom. Um, it's a continuous glucose monitor, which means that it, um, continuously checks my blood sugar for me automatically because it connects to an app on my phone. And every five minutes, a little dot shows up on my graph that I have telling me where my blood sugar is. And it'll also project the direction that I'm going. So say if I'm going up, Uh, my blood sugar will, there'll be an arrow going up on the Dexcom app showing me, Hey, blood sugar's going up. You should probably do something about this. Um, or Hey, I'm going down or I'm going down quickly. I should eat something to stop this. Uh, so ironically the whole flatten the curve thing that we're talking about with coronavirus, I've been doing that for a while now (laughs) (laughs) because it's, uh, it's all about flattening the curve with diabetes, but, um, when I'm on my race board, I wear a hydration pack pretty much every time I'm on my race board, and that hydration pack has my phone, has some water, and also has few chumps, um, just some sort of quick-acting sugar that I can eat. But I wear an Apple Watch, and the Apple Watch talks to my iPhone, and I have the Dexcom app on my watch as well. So while I'm racing, I can actually look down, see what my blood sugar is at, and be like, yep, okay, I'm good. I can keep paddling, um, just keep going. Or, oh, I'm starting to go down. I need to eat something. So I'm constantly monitoring, okay, where's my blood sugar at? And trying to adjust it even while I'm racing. Because if my blood sugar is not in range, I'm not going to feel well, and I'm not going to race well at all.
1: And, and you said, how, how did you actually find out that you had it?
2: So I um, I discovered that I had type 1 diabetes on my graduation day from high school when I was 18. Um, I had been doing online high school um Basically, freshman, or sorry, sophomore, junior, and senior year. So, the last three years of high school I did online. Um, I had also signed my contract with Starboard at the beginning of that year. So, this was my first year, you know, being a professional stand-up paddler, super excited, ready to go. Um, I competed in the Carolina Cup that year. That was my first big race of the year. And I was doing awesome. I was in second place to Annabelle Anderson. And, you know, it looked like I was going to get second. And about a mile and a half from the finish, I just completely bonked. I lost it. I got weak. I couldn't paddle anymore. Um, I crawled in kind of in sixth place. And I chalked it up to experience. You know, I was like, I'm young. This is my first, you know, big international race. Like, as with a team behind me, like, you know, I just need more experience. So I came home and I kept training. Um, and I didn't get any stronger. I was actually getting weaker. I was um, losing quite a lot of weight. I was exhausted, um, very dehydrated, but constantly having to drink water. Um, And then I got an infection. And I went to the doctors, and they gave me some antibiotics for an infection and said, you know, it'll go away. Like, you know, it didn't go away. I went back. They gave me a second round. And that time it did nothing. The infection just continued, and it was, you know, kind of painful. Um, And then I went back to the doctor a third time. This is about a month after um, the Carolina Cup. And it was the day that I had finished high school. Cause I, since everything was online, there was nothing else that I had to do. It was like, all my work was turned in. I'd finished it all that morning, was feeling amazing. Kind of like, you know, high on a cloud. <laughs> and um, went to the doctor that afternoon and explained everything that I had been feeling. And my doctor asked if anybody had checked my blood sugar. I was like,
3: no. Nope. what's that?
2: Why? And so my doctor pricked my finger right then and there and my blood sugar was at 586 milligrams per deciliter and i was like great what's that out of a thousand and he was like no high is like 110 so pretty much right then and there i you know i had um was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and Of course, it was a huge shock to me. I didn't know anything about diabetes. To my family, they're like, "What?" Um, Did
1: you think, "Oh my God, my career is over?"
2: In a way, yeah, because I, you know, being a professional athlete, your body is extremely important. And here, I have, you know, a body that can do really cool things, but a part of it is broken. So, trying to get that through my head, you know, in a span of a few minutes after getting told you have an autoimmune disease, um, wasn't necessarily the most um, light feeling, I could say.
1: Tell me about visiting Starboard and the, and their founder, because are you quite close with him?
2: Yeah, Sven is Sven is amazing. Sven is somebody who you meet Sven and you feel like you feel like you can just go out and do something. You know, he's the kind of person that is like in any difficult situation, you're like, hmm, mm, okay, uh, yep, we can do that. Like, barely doesn't even think you know, that there was not an option to go do it. So when I get, I've been able to head to the factory, um, starboard headquarters in Bangkok, Thailand, a few times. And every time I've been there, you know, it moves at very fast pace. There's a lot of things going on, but it's been an amazing opportunity. The first time I was there, I actually got to shape my own board. Um, I was only there for oh, two and cool. a half days cause yeah. yeah, it was super cool. I was only there for two and a half days cause I was, uh, there in between events. Um, and so we had a ton of boards to test and, um, in the midst of it all, I found this blank. It was like a seven, four, you know, seven, four by 24. And I had been wanting to go to Indonesia for a long time. So I like found this blank is just kind of sitting there. And so I came up to Sven and I was like, Hey Sven, can I, um, can I reshape this thing? And he was like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I kind of want to make like a seven Oh by 22 and three quarters. And he was like, huh? Okay. And so I was like, yeah, and I want a round pin on it. And he brought me to a shaping bay and said, okay, here you go. You can have fun. So in between <laughs> testing boards is I'd like head out to the lake. We'd test a bunch of boards and I'd come back and, you know, keep working on shaping it. It was amazing within – I mean, I left there two and a half days later with my new board that I was going to take the Indo later that year. Like it was awesome. just um, – it was just so cool because in the factory I got to you know physically build something, and the team it was just so much fun. They were excited to see that I was working on a board, and then. Um,
1: and how did know, it just, ride?
2: Oh my goodness! How did the board Amazing. ride? In an that was the coolest thing. Um, unfortunately, the trip that I had planned for, it was supposed to be about six weeks after that, um, I couldn't go, so I was all bummed, because I was like, I just made this board for this trip, and I, I couldn't go, but um, the following year, I got to go, and I got into some of the best surf I've ever been in, and the board rode amazing, it was like, it was so cool, it, I mean, maybe it was just because, you know, I made it, and it felt good, but, um, you know, it was just, it was what I wanted for those kinds of waves. You know, there was hollow, clean, it was super low volume. So I needed to have clean, glassy surf. And luckily, I had a bunch of it.
1: I don't know how you can even paddle a board that small, but that's you know, I'm 6'4", <laughs> so I'm really big. But uh, <laughs> that's
2: crazy. Yeah, it might, but, uh, uh, um, it might be a great shortboard for you.
0: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> What a great chat. And if you enjoyed that, then have a listen to the full episode on our website, SUPFM.show, or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite podcast app. So, our second Best Bits compilation is with Lizzie Carr. And in a minute, we'll hear about her journey down the Hudson into New York City. But Lizzie is a cancer survivor, and it was that experience... And the role that paddleboarding played in her recovery, which made her question her career in the corporate world, and forced her to make some really big decisions.
4: It was a really like disjointed journey. Actually, I, I'd come back, I'd recovered, and I'd gone back to work because, as much as I craved this, um, this sort of new way of living. I also really craved this sort of sense of familiarity and routine and just structure that like cancer had taken away from me. So I got back into the rhythm of work. I went back to my job, just kind of stuck into the grind. And it was only after about a year that I just I really started to feel quite anxious. And I I know now that that was actually a form of survivor's guilt, which I hadn't even heard of at the time. And just kind of feeling really guilty that I'd not made the most of the second chance that I'd had and knowing that I needed to do more with my life. And I was still paddle boarding at weekends and just sort of going to the local canal and, and rivers. Um, but not really, it wasn't something I was thinking about sort of making a big part of my life. And then one day, genuinely one day, I was sat on the train to work. And I just looked around and thought, I cannot do this anymore. Like I've had enough. And if I don't make this decision to leave now, I will never do it. So I handed in my notice. I, I rang my boyfriend and just, I told him I'd quit. And he was like, um, okay. <laughs> um, but I just, I can't describe that feeling in me. Of, I, I kind of had this, this feeling, this quiet confidence that everything would be okay because I'd overcome cancer and nothing in my life could ever be as hard and traumatic as that. So I know that whatever happens now, I'll get through it. And yeah, and I quit. And I spent my time afterwards just on the water, paddleboarding, really as a way to give myself the space and the freedom and the time to work out what I would do next. And I toyed with the idea of being a yoga teacher or a social worker, like that's the route I thought I would go down. But it just worked out, like, the more time I was spending on the water, the more time I was paddling, the more time I was out there in this place as suppose, to restore my health, I was seeing how bad the impact was on the waterways. And this is going back to 2015, um, 2014, 2015, when this like, the issue of plastic pollution really wasn't what it is now. People weren't talking about it. Nobody was thinking about it. Anyone I spoke to about it looked at me like I'd, I don't know, I was just talking rubbish, which is ironic. <laughs> um, and I just kind of, after being out of work and sort of paddling quite a lot over about six or seven months, I just remember thinking, how can I how can I make people see what I'm seeing? How can I make people understand what this problem looks like? And I've been reading quite a lot of um, insight and it was all about like, the very little that there was online at the time. It was all about the oceans and I remember thinking, well, there's so much inland, there's so much on these canals and rivers, and nobody's campaigning for this, nobody's doing anything about this. And I'm seeing swans like chewing on this stuff, and I'm seeing bird's nests almost made up entirely of plastic, and yet there's there's no support for it. So that's where the idea came. Then I know I'll spend my time paddleboarding the length of England, and I'll photograph every single piece of plastic that I see on that route, and I'll plot it in a map. Um, so that I can show people what I'm seeing firsthand on this on this journey and that's what I did I um, I did that I think it 22 days it took me to paddle those 400 miles and I camped up every night on the on the towpaths and cooked my food I had my stove and my sleeping bag and my tent on my board and it was just the most amazing adventure and I think it was a personal odyssey as well like at the time I probably didn't realize that there was this kind of eat pray love element to it I was experiencing for myself um, but it was very much like an environmental journey for me and just trying to get people to think about the planet using paddleboarding and adventure as a vehicle to do that
0: and that journey really captured the public imagination and secured the most incredible amounts of publicity
4: yeah absolutely I was really really well supported and such a surprise for me as well Um, like I really didn't expect it to get the reaction that it did and I feel incredibly lucky that um, there was so much media support around it because the whole point of what I was doing was to get people thinking about plastic and if I could use paddle boarding as a way to get people aware of the sport and grow the sport but also become aware of this sort of major environmental issue then it was just a win-win situation for me
0: and out of her experience paddling across the uk end to end and her environmental awareness she created an organization to help clear up the waterways
4: plastic patrol was just an accidental name it was a hashtag that i used when i was paddleboarding the length of england to just log the litter on social media like to group it together and then it was just a name that stuck and became what i called um the cleanups that i was running with other people but it and um, it was already like, in use by then, and I was already doing stuff like under Plastic Patrol, but there was no sort of formal organisation. Nothing was, nothing was, yeah, set up properly. It was just me doing my thing. And um, mm-hmm. so when I did the channel, the reason behind that, and you have actually just um, talked about it, was to highlight microplastics because I'd done this sort of um, big campaign around. The normal sort of plastic that we're finding the sort of on the go throwaway bits of litter that we find in our waterways and um, but i wanted to draw attention to what happens to that when it breaks down when it reaches sort of larger bodies of water and the impact that has on the environment ecologically and i mean at the time there was no research then on, on what impact it had on human health but we know we know a lot more now and mm. um, i would say like looking back it was probably still too premature like i don't think people were really ready to talk about that then because it was still before people were even just talking about normal plastics and um, but because i was so embroiled in the issue i was like everyone has to know about this this is urgent and important and we have to do it now and um, so i did micro sampling well on that crossing um, every fourth uh mile i would um drop a, a net in and um, there was a support boat so if you cross the channel on a paddleboard by law you have to have a support boat um, mm. Had a support boat that worked with me on it, and we worked with the University of Plymouth, mm. and um, had all of those water samples analysed um, on return. And every single sample we collected had microplastics in it, and um, like hundreds of thousands of pieces in some cases. So it was just it was awful because when you think that I was just me and a very small, you know, section of water, when you scale that up into an entire body of water, you realise just how much is there.
0: And Lizzie went on to do some really long SUP expeditions. She crossed the English Channel, but she was also the first person to paddle all the way down the Hudson, right the way down to New York City.
4: Really, it was. It was such a moment, just standing in front of the Statue of Liberty at the end of it. And that had been a really horrific journey because I'd had all sorts of horrible weather systems. There was a storm Gordon was leaving Um, the East Coast as Hurricane Florence was coming in. So the weather systems that were thrown up were just so unpredictable and there were thunderstorms and torrential rain and really, really strong winds. And I think with something like that, when the conditions get really bad, you sort of have to take a step back and think, there's definitely a fine line here between being a badass and being a total Mm. dumbass. And I want to complete this journey, but I also don't want to get electrocuted or struck by lightning and um, so it was really hard for me because there were days where I thought I'm just not going to complete this I'm just not going to get this done and um, because the weather's so awful and then every day like following day I'd wake up and there would be this weather window or there would be this opportunity to get out there and like the tides and the um the currents would work in my favor which meant I could make up a lot of distance that I maybe would have lost the day before and I thought I wouldn't be able to finish it so getting to that end point when it had been such like quite an emotional journey for me like it was really as well as it being physically demanding it was really really mentally challenging Um, and was was so Mm -hmm. special because it was a lot a lot harder than I expected like the Hudson people would assume that the um channel which was tough would be really difficult but the hudson is like for me at at that time in those conditions it was the channel times 100 it was just really really really
0: really difficult and there's some big old boats as well going up and down huge
4: as like it's what you'd see on the um on the the channel except like every single day they're sort of creeping up behind you you want to you want to paddle in um in the shipping lanes because that's where we can get the most speed but also you don't want to get in their way because if you don't time that line you can't get out quickly enough and you've got a crosswind and you're being blown in front of them they have right of way it's their right of passage Mm. um so you have to just be really really careful and they just creep up on you they're silent so you can't ever distract yourself with um like music you can't just get into a rhythm and sort of just switch off from the world because and it's not even just the boats, everything. You have to be on high alert on that river all the time. And that in itself is really exhausting. So by the end of the day, all things considered, it just it's, it's just really it's knackering.
0: So thank you, Lizzie, and congratulations on motherhood. And hopefully we'll see you back on the water soon. So our third guest is Maddie LeBlanc and Maddie is multi-talented. She's a racer, um, she's a fundraiser, she's an ecologist and she's an academic as well. And she had the amazing recognition from the SUP industry this year by being awarded the SUP Connect Woman of the Year, which is the prize in world stand-up paddling. So that was an incredible achievement. We chatted to her back in... April, I think it was, just as everyone was going into first stages of, of lockdown. But we had a great chat. And first of all, we talked about her appearance representing Canada on the World ISA Championships in China.
3: One of my friends that I race with pretty closely around here in Ontario, uh, her name's Ariel Amaral, and she had gone out to B.C., earlier that year in May to qualify for Team Canada. And I decided not to go out to BC that year because for me, it was pretty expensive. I was still finishing up my undergrad and I honestly just couldn't afford to go. And so later on that same year, I think it was September, a spot had opened up on the team and Ariel called me and she's like, Maddie, we have a spot. Would you like to come and represent Team Canada. And it was actually kind of funny because at first I I said no because I was starting uh, my last year of my undergrad. I was writing an undergraduate thesis. And again, just time and money. I, I said, Ariel, like thank you so much, but I just I don't have the resources and the support to go. And she said, okay, like that's too bad. And I remember banging my head against a wall being like, man, I just gave up the opportunity of a lifetime, but I seriously can't go. And then luckily enough, she actually called me back a month later. So it was now October. And she said, Maddie, we still have that spot open. And one of our other team members uh, will pay for your flight to China. Wow! So you need to get your butt on our team and you need to come with us to China. That point, I... I didn't even hesitate. Yep. <laughs> I said, "Okay, bags are packed. I'm coming. I'll see you soon." <laughs>
0: Fantastic. And and how did you enjoy China?
3: Oh, I I loved every single aspect of China. It humbled me so much in the experiences that I had with the locals, with my team members, with other athletes around the world. Like I couldn't believe that all of these famous stand up paddleboarders that I've only ever seen from my laptop or or my phone screen they were standing like right in front of me. Like I actually got to say hi to Connor Baxter and and Candice Appleby and Fiona. And I I couldn't believe it. I was like, someone pinch me. (laughs) This isn't happening.
0: (laughs) And uh, what was the atmosphere like in the village? And clearly everyone has their game face on, on race day, but um, you know, I guess people pretty much get on and and mix when they're, they're not racing.
3: Yeah. I would say the China atmosphere like was pretty unique because um stand up paddleboarding in itself being a lifestyle sport really spoke to that environment that we were in. Like I would say when we were on the event site and just waiting on the beach for races to start, like you could feel the tension for sure. A lot of athletes having their headphones in, looking down. I know I did too. Like I I blocked out every single excess noise around me. <laughs> but at the same time like when the other events were happening like the surf surfing Or the opening ceremonies, there was also kind of a peacefulness to it too, and a really unique atmosphere where everybody could chat and connect with each other, connect with the locals, and really just take in what China was all about.
0: And because I had absolutely zero and have absolutely zero chance of standing on the start line of an international competition, I asked her, What was that experience like?
3: Oh, I just remember the only thing I could look at was the water. Like, I was not turning my head to anybody or anything. Mm-hmm. I I didn't want to see anybody else's faces. I just saw the water and thought, okay, you need to run straight for that. Um, but I think, too, for a split second, like, I definitely thought of everybody back at home. Like, I thought of everybody supporting me. I knew some of my friends and family were watching ISA live feed. And so in my head, too, I was thinking, man, I wonder what my family's thinking right now. Like they're staying up really late to watch this. <laughs> um, I hope they're kind of thinking the same thing I am. And in that, hopefully, this will be a successful race and it'll be a lot of fun. The horn blew and I took off. And I just remember I, I actually started that first lap because I believe we had to do four laps. Um, I took off really hard like I gave it a lot and I remember coming around on the second lap thinking like okay Maddie you need to slow this down because your heart rate is like through the roof and you definitely cannot keep up this pace (laughs) if you keep going. Um, So I remember thinking like okay you have to slow it down and after my third lap I had come into the beach Uh, You had to run around a flag and then go back out with your board. And I had to borrow a board from China because our starboard that we were supposed to have um, in China kind of got destroyed in an accident on the way over. Mm. Um, So we had to borrow a board. And this board was so heavy. Like, I have never carried such a heavy board in my life. And so my parents were watching the race at home and they were laughing pretty hard because um, a lot of the feed at first was showing Candace Appleby and Tareen Black because they were also in my heat and they were in first and second. And so for a split second, the camera panned to me and it said, oh, here comes Maddie LeBlanc from Canada. And it was just as I was carrying the board and running back out into the water through the beach break. And because I was so tired because I had burned myself out in the first lap, Um, I had thrown the board down on the water and laid down on it and was getting ready to stand up, but a wave was coming. And in my head, I was like, Oh man, I'm way too tired. I don't think I can stand up before this wave comes. (laughs) And so for the split second that the live feed showed me, this wave just comes and demolishes me. And my parents, lost it. Like they texted me during the race and they said, we just watched you get hit by a wave (laughs) (laughs) and I couldn't believe it. And so that was the first thing I remember seeing on my phone (laughs) after that race.
0: Maddie isn't just a racer; she's a fundraiser. She's an academic, which we'll hear a bit more about later on, and she's also an instructor and a leading light for SUP kids in Ontario, Canada. And I talked to her about what an incredible buzz it is to introduce people into the sport, particularly children, for the first time.
3: Oh, it's it's so true. Like, I'll I'll never forget last summer. I taught this one boy who he really loved to be inside and play video games. Like he he was not happy that his parents had signed him up for this program. And so he showed up on day one and he's looking at me and he's kind of got this pouty face cause he doesn't want to be there. But the second he got on a paddle board, it's like he just left his ego on the beach, like his whole face lit up like Christmas and he just totally changed his perspective around and had so much fun swimming and diving and playing with the other kids. And by the end of the week, he actually didn't want to leave. He, he looked at me and he said, Maddie, I, I'm going to sign up for another week. I, I want to come back. And I said, yeah, like we would love to have you back. You're always more than welcome. So oh, amazing. I, I've, I've had so many experiences like that. Yeah. And, and I'm sure other subkid schools have too. And it, there's no words to describe what that feeling is like, knowing that you've changed a child's life like that in just a matter of a week and through a paddleboard. When I signed up for my master's, I knew, okay, this is really cool what I found in my undergrad. I want to be able to apply it again. But this time with my work with sub kids, I want to research children and I want to see if if it's the same for children, does getting them on a stand-up paddleboard make them generate some sort of environmental awareness or environmental concern? And so I was actually supposed to travel to Thailand. I was supposed to be there in a couple of weeks <laughs> to go to starboard and observe the kids' camp there uh, to collect my data. But unfortunately, with, with the world's pandemic mm-hmm. right now, that's, that's not possible. But I'm hoping to travel to another Suck kids' school later on this summer hopefully if things start to open up to uh, partake in a process called ethnography and that's basically Mm -hmm. research where you just kind of sit back and you watch everything that's happening and you write down field notes Um, i don't get to say anything to the kids i don't get to be an instructor actually in that scenario i just literally get to sit back and watch what's happening and write down my observations And so I'm hoping through that research, um, my hypothesis is to find that um, more kids will care for the environment after they're done uh, participating in the program. But we'll see. I'm really, really excited about this research and to keep proving to people that stand-up paddleboarding does make a difference in people's lives and makes a difference in their relationship with the environment and hopefully grows it.
0: A big thank you to Maddie, Fiona and Lizzie and to all our guests this year. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast and we're really looking forward to 2021. And of course, the biggest thank you is to you, our listeners, for giving us so much support. So we hope you have a fantastic Christmas and a wonderful 2021 and really look forward to seeing you on the water.